me a favor just for a moment as we begin this morning, and I would love for you just to pause. And imagine, if you would, you sitting with the Savior that Blake and our team just led us through, just having coffee. And if you don't like coffee, stand. it could be tea, maybe it's a milkshake, whatever, you, whatever beverage you might want to have with Jesus, and just picture that moment. Like you're in dialogue with Jesus, and you begin to tell Jesus about life. And you begin to tell him how overwhelming it is, and how frustrating this current season of life might be. You might say to him that um, you're overwhelmed, that the pace that you are living, the pace that you and your family are living is not sustainable. Maybe you are rushed and you are frantic. Maybe you might even use the word exhausted. Maybe there's a particular circumstance in your life right now that's causing a great deal of pain and you'd be sharing that with him, whatever it might be. It'll be different for all of us. But as you're doing that, I want you to take it a little bit more personal right now. And I'm going to put some slides up here. I'm simply going to ask that you fill in the blank in your head. Not out loud this morning. But maybe as you're talking with Jesus, you might say to him, my interior world, Jesus, is blank. My relationships with others are what? Are they healthy? Are they a wreck? Are they falling apart? Blank is robbing me of energy and joy. I don't know how to stop. My life seems like a blank. I've allowed my desires for blank to get in the way of my desires for you. You're just having this conversation with Jesus, and I can't help but think that the next question you might ask him might be, how on earth did you navigate your time while you were here on this earth with all the things that were going on even then? And I have a feeling that even at that moment in time, he would pause, and before answering the question, he'd say, just pause for a second. Everything you just said to me sounds really hard. In fact, it might even sound pretty painful, and I can't help but think that he'd get pretty practical. But before he did that, I think he'd say, hey, do me a favor. Just walk with me. Just walk with me. I'd like, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what's going on. Pray with me. Father God, we say thank you for this morning. I say thank you for this gathered church that's here right now, that's also online with us. Father, thank you for the different personalities and the different families that are represented here. Thank you for your presence. Father, thank you for your son Jesus who does care for us and who, even as we have lifted many songs this morning, who deeply loves us and who is deeply concerned about our walk, Father, and who in fact does walk with us. May we become more aware and attentive to his presence in our life and of your presence and of the formation that's taking place. I thank you for your son Jesus, and it's in his name and through the power of your Holy Spirit I pray. Amen. So we're in this conversation on Sunday mornings about this dynamic journey that we're on. And I use the word dynamic really specifically because you and I are not on a static journey. We are moving. At least that's, that's what we hope we're doing. We're in the process of moving. We're moving along. And we've been discussing what it looks like to participate or to be on or in the mission of God. And the very fact that you and I, 
actually have a role in this thing called the mission of God. And so as we get going this morning, I want to lay down two very fundamental realities or principles that I think that we should embrace moving forward if we are going to walk and participate in this mission, okay? First one's pretty, uh, they're both pretty simple, but they're both uh, pretty self-explanatory. So if you and I have, in fact, have said yes to who Jesus is, this goes back to a couple of weeks ago when I preached last time, you and I must become familiar with our identity, right? Can you say the word Identity. Identity. You and I have to become familiar with our identity. You and I are disciples. And as disciples, we are participants in the continued mission and ministry of Jesus. But let me use even some different language here. You and I are actually agents of the kingdom. No matter what you do in life, you may have a job title, you may have a particular occupation that you actually work in, you are still an agent of Jesus Christ within those occupations. Whether you are a teacher or a principal, whether you are a nurse or a doctor, whether you are landscaping for a living, whether you are owning a business, whatever it may be, whatever occupation I have left out, there are many. You and I are agents of the kingdom within this sphere. And so as you think about this, here's the second thing I need you to think about. You've got your identity down, right? The other thing you and I must become very familiar with is your enemy and my enemy. Let me make this very clear. Guess what? I am not your enemy. You are not my enemy. We are not each other's enemies in this church. We understand that? Can you say amen to that? We have to understand who our enemy is. It's going to get pretty blatant here in a second, but we must acknowledge it. You and I have got to name it, and you and I cannot take it for granted. Yes, you and I are in a battle, but it is not of flesh and blood. It's not with flesh or blood. It's with this unseen realm that I actually quite believe, Stan, that if, we, if the veil were to come back just a little bit, we'd probably be pretty terrified to see what's actually taking place that we are not often attentive of. So know our identity, embrace our, our identity, and then become very familiar with the enemy. Here's how Paul would say it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, or the rulers, against the authorities, and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Is that not a mouthful? That is our enemy. And they are at work in uh, the unseen realm, but it affects our physical world in ways that we can't possibly imagine. Here's what Peter would go on to say. Um, He would say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your text might say, be alert. Be on alert, be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That doesn't sound pleasant, if you ask me. So, these powers that exist, they're all over the place. And they actually dwell in the lies. Hear that language very carefully. They dwell in the lies that you and I experience. And then you and I come to believe them. And then what we end up coming to do is we actually live these lies out. And so they major, if you would, in deception. That's who your enemy is, and that's how they partake. And so while you and I are here, these powers are at work 
to sabotage us. I have the word us in yellow. Because they sabotage or attempt to sabotage me. They attempt to sabotage Jamie. They attempt to sabotage Jim Pedigo. They attempt to sabotage any name I want to put in here, any individual. They are attempting to sabotage us as individuals, but they also are at work to sabotage the church and the community of people in many different unique ways. For example, you and I have different, different personalities, right? You in this room have different personalities from the people you're sitting with. You also have different strengths. You also have different growth areas and weaknesses and challenges. I'm fairly confident that Satan knows which one of those to use. Same goes with our churches. Unique ways. And if the word sabotage is not heavy enough, listen to the language from the text. They actually are here to distort, kill, steal, devour, and destroy. Pretty harsh language, right? It's pretty intense language if you ask me. So, name them for what they are and where they come from. Make sense? Let's just name it for what they are. So here's the question then. We brought this up a couple of weeks ago as well. You got your identity? There's the enemy. Where do we go from here? And I brought up three options. You and I can make the decision to escape all this mess. I don't know how successful it will be. People have tried, and there have been some noble attempts to do so. Um, but we can escape. We can turn our back on what's going on in this world and with people, and we can have nothing to do with it because it's not our problem. We can do that. We can assimilate. We can do what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, and we can become like our culture without even thinking about it. It's that easy. It's effortless. Or we can engage. And so that's where we're going today. Leslie wanted me to bring, this is the topic I was going to utilize a couple of weeks ago uh, when our schedules got interrupted. Um, But we can engage. And I think that's where I would say that's what we're called to do. We're called to engage. We're called to be present in this thing that we call life. We're called to be participants in this kingdom mission. But the question is how, right? How is it that you and I, and what is it that's going to enable us to engage in this life and mission? Because if you heard all the things we just said about the enemy, it sounds pretty intense. So what is it and how is it that you and I can navigate this life? I I hesitate to use the word successfully. But I, I still want to use the word, right? Maybe purposefully, maybe effectively. How can you and I continue to engage in this mission with the principles at hand? And I think it goes back to the text that Leslie has continued to use on Sunday mornings. This is 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says this, Paul says this, And we all are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we've, we've kind of flirted around with this conversation of what it means to be transformed, but we're going to dig into it just a little bit further. And so I'm going to talk about just our continued Christian spiritual formation. It's a mouthful, right? And so let me give you a definition to go with it. Christian spiritual formation, then, is this process of you and I being formed into the image of Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. Okay? You got that? Just Christian spiritual formation. Get that idea of transformation in your head. And here's this text. One more, here's the uh, uh, definition one more time. It's the process of you and I being formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. So if you just break it down, check it out. It's a process. It does not happen overnight. You and I, when we instantly engage in the act of baptism, do not come out of the waters fully equipped and fully mature. Right? There's a lifetime, there's a process that comes with this of becoming Christ-like. So it's a process. It's also something that we're being formed. 
In other words, I can't make myself become more Christ-like. As much as I want to stop doing things and want to be like Christ, there are times I fail. Yes? And so there is a process, but I'm being formed. But this is the essential part, is I'm being formed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is engaged in this entire process, and it's not just for some silly reason, it's actually for the sake of others. You and I are becoming Christ-like for the sake of the world. And so we're going to highlight two ways this morning about, uh, as far as what that looks like. The first one we have been talking about quite a bit, it simply looks like this. When you and I are engaged in participation. Think about this. The more that you engage in the ways of Christ, right, you become like him. Think about that just for a second. By participating in the very mission of Jesus, you become Christ-like, right, Hugh? When you become Christ-like, right? So you're participating in his ways. Tony, and y'all just stood up here and talked about room at the end. It's one of the many ways that we can participate in the ongoing mission of Christ. But think about all the things that take place even in the room at the end. Food, service, kindness, offering a bed, offering warmth. There's Christ-likeness taking place. And so I can't help but think that the more we participate in activities like that, we become more like Jesus. That's one of the ways. Here's where we're going to highlight, though. You and I become more like Jesus by participating in spiritual disciplines. Yes, and at the bottom it says that Jesus engaged. Okay, spiritual disciplines. Now, I'm going to use some words that are synonymous with each other. I'm going to use words like spiritual disciplines. I'll use words like spiritual exercises, spiritual habits, spiritual practices. And one of my favorite elders, you all know this, wherever our, our, our shepherds are, spirit-empowered rhythms. Yeah? Ask our elders what the last year has been like as far as us having conversations about these very things regarding their time together and what it means for elders and Christian leaders to continue to be shaped in the likeness of Christ. They're rhythms of intimacy with God. That's what these all are. And that, so you, you might hear me use all these different words. They're all the same thing. Um, and so I would like to think of myself maybe as just a tireless champion for this. If you have been around me in class, if you have been around us at all, this is a conversation we enjoy having. And I'm going to keep having it as long as I have breath because I think it matters. And so I think they do these things. I think they help sustain us and strengthen us for this journey that we're on. I think that's why Jesus also participated in them. But John Micah, I, always, I like to have a slide in there, but John Micah. But John Micah, the word spiritual discipline isn't in the Bible. The word spirit-empowered rhythm isn't, it doesn't say that, Blake. It doesn't, it doesn't have that word there, so where do you get that? I'm glad you asked. So glad you asked. Because I think as you look through this, um, you're going to find out that the Bible is filled with conversation about spiritual practices, okay? So what on earth are they? Well, they're things like prayer. The Bible's filled with conversations about prayer. There's things like being in the Word, silence, solitude, meditation, generosity, worship, rest, confession, fasting, serving, and hospitality, just to name a few. They're all pathways that God uses to transform us. And here's what I can tell you. There are, each one of these words up here needs much more time to explore. And it's, it's, we're, we're brushing with such broad strokes this morning. But this is what spiritual disciplines are. These are spiritual exercises. They're practices. And again, each one of them deserves so much more time. But they also fall under different categories. All right? Are you, are you with me so far? All right. <laughs> Blake, you still with me? Okay. We got inward disciplines. 
These are the kind of disciplines or practices that help you and I slow down and focus our, on our inner realities, all right? I, something I would call soul care as well. It could be things like prayer and fasting or being in the Word, and those are just three. But those are things that we do that help reflect what's happening on the inside of us, okay? We do engage in corporate prayer, all right? But at, when you are by yourself and you are communing with Jesus, there's something happening between you and him, fasting, being in the word. Another one is outward disciplines. These are outward expressions of our inner realities. Pretty simple, right? How about this? Your speech and my speech, the way we speak to each other, guess what? Actually is an act or a spiritual discipline. The words that come out of your mouth, whether they are Christ-like or not. You remember Paul will often say things like, you probably shouldn't be slandering. You probably shouldn't be gossiping. You probably shouldn't be using different kinds of languages. There's, there's lots of ways to think about this, right? But our speech can literally become a spiritual discipline. How we talk about things. Not just the words that we use, but how we talk about it. Simplicity of living in an era of too much stuff. Right? All the way to service. We just talked about it. So there's inward, there's outward, but there's also corporate disciplines. Practices that you and I participated together. Joe, if I had a dollar for every time you used the word meditate on worship and song this morning through your piece, we'd have a lot of spiritual disciplines right there. These are corporate disciplines. Gathered worship like you and I are experiencing today. Confession, celebration. So we've got inward, you've got outward, and you've got corporate disciplines, okay? Every one of them in some way, shape, or form is intentional. They should be practical. They should be sustainable. In other words, Don, you should be able to keep up with it. Right? Don't do something that you can't possibly keep up with. Make it tangible. Right? Maybe they're adaptable as well. So per your season of life, you might even adjust these. So these are all habits that cultivate attentiveness and awareness to our Creator. Okay? But why? Why do we even put forth the effort? I think I back to a guy that many of you, if you've been in these conversations with us, you know I can't stop talking about this particular book. I'm going to start with a, uh, well, he's, he's obviously not a disciple. He's not an apostle of Jesus. I mean, he is a disciple, right? He's a contemporary author. I'm going to start there. He wrote a book in 1978 called uh, Celebration of Discipline. 1978. That's, if my math is right, that's 44 years ago, correct? 44 years ago. He said then, in 1978, that the world that you and I live in was dominated by superficiality. 44 years ago. He said superficiality is the curse of our age. He goes on to say this. He goes on to say, um, your adversary, my adversary, the Satan, Satan himself, majors in three things. Noise, hurry, and crowds. And if he can keep you and I engaged in muchness and manyness, then he will experience Sabbath. Satan will rest if you and I are so preoccupied that Jesus Christ is not even on our radar. We think about all these other heinous things that are going on in the world that the powers that be are involved in, and they are. And at the same time, as long as he can keep us distracted from keeping our eyes on Jesus, he's satisfied. So if you and I are going to move beyond the superficialities of our culture and our lives then you and I have got to slow down and plunge into the realities of what's happening with each one of our hearts in this room and online listening. Uh, you and I have to engage in what we might call soul training 
I didn't put that one up there earlier, but now we're going to go to Paul. So methods of soul training. Paul might, well, he, doesn't, he might not say this. He does say this in 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Do you hear that language? Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Huh. Training. How about 1 Corinthians uh, 2, uh, 9, 24-27? Do you not know that in a race all runners run? But only the one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one breathing air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul understood then the necessity of training our minds and our bodies to be at work in this mission. So you and I, what we experience then, as our interior world begins to change, our exterior world begins to change. And this is when we get into conversations about choices, habits, and character. So students, that's all it took to get all their attention at once. Did you see that? Students, you are not too young right now to begin thinking about choices, right? When it comes to your spiritual well-being, and you're not going to have it all figured out. But you begin to make choices now that in turn become habits. And those habits eventually start to shape your character over and over and over again. So those of you who are adults in this room who have made a lot of choices in your life and who have a lot of bad habits already or a lot of good habits, think about this. We can shift and change those, but they have, we have to be intentional about it, right? But there's more, Teresa. There's more, okay? It's one of my favorite infomercials. There is more, and that is this. Jesus is the model. If you're wondering, John Michael, you've made all this up. No, I haven't. If we're going to hold Jesus Christ right here, we've got to put him right up there and say he modeled these things. He was sustained and strengthened by the same Holy Spirit that you and I are. He was sustained and strengthened by the same spiritual practices that we've just brought up. As a matter of fact, if you go to Mark chapter 1, it's going to say this. Jesus had a rhythm of getting up early in the morning to be in prayer. You may not be a morning person. I'm not saying you have to do that. Maybe you're an evening person. I'm just saying Jesus was a morning person. And get this, 2,000 years ago, the world got noisy, so he got up early before it got too crowded and, and, and engaged in prayer. How about this one? Jesus often withdrew to lonely places by himself to be in prayer. He was engaged in silence and solitude to be in prayer. On more than one occasion, Jesus prayed through the night. Check this out, though. He didn't just detach from the world for the sake of detaching. He detached to reattach or to attach to his father. Now, let's be fair. His disciples were annoying. Fair? You and I are often annoying. If you're sitting next to your spouse, you know this. Okay? There are times that we detach from other people because if we don't, we're going to lose our minds. I have a feeling that from time to time when Jesus said, I really need you guys to get on the boat and go across the sea. I'll catch up with you. I'll be on the mountain for a day. Don't come looking for me. I'll walk across the water and find you. And he did. He detached to attach. How about this? He encouraged his disciples to enter periods of rest. Matthew, I said Mark as well. We see Jesus engaged in reading scripture throughout the New Testament. And maybe even better than just seeing him engaged in it, which pertains to our conversation this morning, we see the results of his relationship with the word. 
The text that's up there right now, if you're wondering what Luke 4 is, is his temptation in the wilderness. And every time that the Satan threw his best at Jesus and tried to get him to stumble, he threw Scripture right back at him. Because Scripture was part of who he was. Right? He also is the Word, by the way, but he knew Scripture well. And so these are things that we follow him in, right? So we follow him in his, we follow him and we follow his habits. By the way, the early church did the same thing. It wasn't just individuals who did this, but if you look back in Acts chapter 2, this is what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day who were being saved. They practiced the ways of Jesus. So what's the purpose, John Micah? I think this is what, more than anything else, this is what happens beside, when the Holy Spirit is working inside of us. Spiritual disciplines help orient our lives. Your lives are going to be oriented around something. As a matter of fact, I would go ahead and challenge to say that they already are. You are already oriented around something or some principles. There are organizing principles that make you do and function like you do. Spiritual disciplines help us orient our lives in the kingdom. They also help us align our lives with Jesus. So we are either in alignment or out of alignment, right? These are things that help align who we are. They help guide, support, and enable us to live in this age. They also help fix our attention on Jesus. These are all things that spiritual disciplines help us do, but how? How does this even take place? Well, at the end of the day, what happens when you and I participate in spiritual disciplines is we create space in our lives for the Holy Spirit to be at work. In fact, you've seen the word intentional several times. You and I intentionally create margin where there is none because we've let life get so out of control. We create margin and spaciousness for the Holy Spirit to be at work. And then in those spaces, not just in those spaces, but especially in those spaces, the Spirit is equipping us and transforming us into the image of Jesus so that you and I can be the agents that we're called to be. Final word on these things. They are for everyone. Spiritual disciplines is not some fancy word for spiritual elite or gurus who think they know everything. They're not just for monks, okay? They are for everyone. Everybody who is hearing this, they are for all of us, for everyone. Um, By the way, there's also no one-size-fits-all. We could go on for days talking about spiritual disciplines and things that can become spiritual disciplines. And they become spiritual disciplines when they are empowered and guided by the Spirit. So things I may participate in may not be exactly what you participate in just because of your schedule, your personality. But there are some things that we're all going to agree on like prayer, right, and worship and being in the Word and hospitality and things of that nature. So there are some, but there is no one size fits all. By the way, some are more essential in certain seasons of life than others. You may lean more deeply into a certain kind of prayer life when things are miserable, and you can return to the Psalms and see the psalmist writing prayers in different seasons of life. So depending on your season of life, they're going to come in different shapes and forms. And by the way, they can do nothing by themselves. If you just fast for the sake of fasting, yes, there's going to be some weight loss benefits if you do it it right and in a healthy way. right? But when you fast in regards to biblical fasting, there are reasons why we do it, but... 
um, when you include the Spirit into it, it's why it makes sense. And it's not a checklist. <laughs> Please don't hear that this morning. It's not a checklist. They're not meant to be a burden. They're not meant to be legalistic. The moment they cross into that, the moment they've lost their purpose altogether. They help us slow down and cultivate spaciousness by helping you and I remain open and available to what God's doing in our hearts. I'm not going to read all this, but Ruth Haley Barton has probably done more to help me shape my mindset on this than anybody has. And she would say that disciplines are basic components of the rhythm of intimacy with God that feed and nourish our souls. You know what I am going to read it because it's pertinent to this conversation. This is what she says. Jesus knows how quickly our passions, even the most noble, can wear us out even if we're not careful. I think he also understands that the sources of our exhaustion are many and complex, and often we are completely unaware of how they are taking their toll. There are the obvious sources of our exhaustion, like the heavy workload, many family responsibilities, busy seasons when extra activity crowds in, but there are more subtle sources of inner exhaustion as well. We might be functioning out of an inordinate sense of ought and should, burdened by unrealistic expectations about what it means to be a good Christian. And since they're not always sure how to live with our humanness, we feel guilty when we are tired, ill, or grieving and try to shove it down rather than attend to it. But it takes energy to repress these aspects of our humanness. And eventually, the effort itself wears us out. Right back to the beginning. Just imagine coffee with Jesus, if you don't mind. Whether you know it or not, I started you out with a spiritual practice. <laughs> you may not literally be able to have coffee with Jesus, right? But you can. It's a, it's a practice you can engage in. Literally, you could sit down when things get quiet with a cup of coffee or whatever it is and begin a prayer that morning to sit and go, Jesus, it's just not going right already. <laughs> it's not even 7 a.m. and things are already falling apart, Right? We hadn't even hit the road yet, and things are falling apart, Jesus. It may not be just that. It may be other things that are going on in your life. But imagine coffee with Jesus. Just imagine time spent with him, if you would. And here's what I'd love you to do this week. Just examine your current pace of life. Some of your lives are a blur because you're moving so quickly. Time is slipping through your fingers, right? It's just you're moving so rapidly. Examine your pace of life. Examine your current rhythms. Are they healthy? Are they life-giving? Are they life-taking? And why, do you, why are you in those rhythms? Also, take a look at your relationships and your relationship with Jesus. And I would say invite. Invite the Spirit to be at work in you. And this week, take some intentional time. Intentional time to make space for God. If you're in a small group tonight or this week, instead of putting a traditional small group guide in the box, I put this thing in there called cultivating spaciousness. It's actually an exercise. What's it look like to practice the presence of God? And so it guides you through what it could possibly look like if you don't know what it looks like to be still and slow down. It gives you a way of slowing down and being still. But it's got to be intentional. Here's my last question for you. What's it look like? for us to develop and maintain rhythms of spiritual practices that keep us open and available to God. And I want to encourage you to do so. It's not a guilt trip. It's not me 
beating anybody over the head with anything at all. It's me saying, hey, these are things that Jesus himself modeled. In, he modeled. And it might do us well to actually pause and take a moment to think, I wonder what would happen. I wonder how differently our life journey would be if we began to open ourselves in ways that maybe we haven't. And by the way, I came from a tradition that didn't talk about this very often. My dad modeled it, but we didn't use the word spiritual discipline. It didn't hit me until later, later, much later in life. I go, where has this been my whole life? Right? Maybe you're in here and Jesus is a new name on the palate of your tongue. And you're just now hearing about him for the first time. Maybe you're well acquainted with Jesus and maybe it's just time to get reacquainted with who he is and what he's doing in your world. Whatever it may be, we're here as a community and as a body of believers today. So if it's nothing more than us wrapping our arms around you and praying for you this morning, we'll do that. But if you want to place Jesus on in baptism for the first time ever, uh, we'd love to participate in that with you as well. Come with us as we stand.